0: This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Le'Ile Tuvia Cardos, the father of our dear friend Ron Cardos, who recently passed away. May his soul be elevated in heaven. Now, before we begin, there's some quick programming notes. So this week is Parsha Smitsora, but next week, the Shabbos coincides with Pesach, and therefore next week there is no Parsha. And the following week is also Pesach, at least in the diaspora, because Pesach, you know, it's an eight-day festival, so it covers Saturday and Saturday, meaning that not next week and not the following week, we won't have a new Parsha. So the next Parsha will be not next week, not the following week, but the following week after that, and that will be Parshas Achrimos. Now, it is interesting to note that because in the diaspora, we have the second day of the festival. Therefore, we have eight days, and therefore day eight is Shabbos, and because it's Pesach, we don't have a new Parsha. But in Israel, where they don't observe the second day of the festival, next Shabbos, meaning not this one, not the following one, not Pesach, but the eighth day of Pesach that's here is actually Parsha's Achremos in Israel. So for a few months, The schedule of the Parsha in the Diaspora is going to be one week behind the schedule of the Parsha in the land of Israel. We're going to follow the Diaspora schedule as we always do. But just a quick note that next week and the following week, there are no Parshas. I still have to do maybe a podcast or two, but the truth is I wouldn't mind having some time off. It's been a busy whirlwind bunch of weeks. There's tons of work to do to get ready for Pesach. And as you know, we recently had a baby. Thank God the baby's doing well. The mom is doing well. But we have been busy in other ways as well. We actually traveled with our whole family to the Northeast last week. So we were away for a whole week because my sister-in-law, Haya's sister, she got married in New Jersey last week. So we were there for the wedding and for the ensuing celebration. And Shabbos we spent in the Raleigh Hotel in South Fallsburg, New York. Incidentally, I made a speech. They asked me to give a speech. Maybe I'll record it as a Parsha podcast in lieu of a Parsha podcast. But it's been really crazy. If you've emailed me recently, you've seen how it it took me longer to respond than I typically do. My pledge is to respond to every email, but not necessarily in a timely fashion. So I've been way behind. I'm trying to claw out of my bulging inbox at rabbleobjumman.com. So please forgive me for that. I hope to get back on schedule, back on track in the next couple of weeks. But again, this week is Parsh Sora. Next week, there is no partial We'll try to do a podcast, maybe something on Pesach. Maybe I'll record the speech that I gave in New York and upstate New York, maybe we'll take a week off. But again, next week, the following, week, there are no new parshios. so stay tuned. Three weeks from now, we'll have a new Parsha. So this is going to be a content-heavy episode, and not just any content, you know, if we're going to take a couple of weeks off. I want to give you something valuable. We'll give you something really interesting, I think really useful, and it's an idea that uh, is like a theme that's strung through the Parsha. It also relates to the upcoming festival of Pesach, but I think it's a very valuable idea and framing for life. It's one of those global ideas that really accompanies us throughout the whole Torah, but really throughout our entire spiritual lives. It is almost the bedrock of our relationship with the Almighty, and it's something that really can be expanded upon and elaborated upon in many different ways. So, of course, our Parsha is really a continuation of what we had last week. Parshas Tazria talks about purity and impurity, but the bulk of the Parsha deals with a very specific kind of impurity, namely that of tsaras, which is poorly translated as leprosy. This is some form of ailment, of malady, that's really a spiritual malady, but it's manifested in a physical fashion, either on your skin, on your hair, on your clothing, on the walls of your home. And our parasha begins with the process of purification of the Mitsorah, the person with Saras. So we have the process of rendering someone impure. That's last week. That's week we have the process of, you know, once someone has been healed, what's the process of reverting them back to, or restoring them back to a state of purity. And of course, it talks also about the, the the methods of rendering a home impure due to tzaras. So this is a very interesting idea. And I want to introduce the subject with an incredible comment from the Ramban. This is actually featured in last week's parsha, chapter 13, verse 47, where he talks about the idea of tzaras in general. I think that we mentioned this also in the rebroadcast podcast, but it's going to be a springboard for the idea that I want to convey today. The Rabban tells us that this malady, saras, poorly translated as leprosy, this is not a natural phenomenon at all. It didn't exist in the natural world. It never did and never will, not just on the, on the garments, but also on the house. The idea is more of a spiritual idea. And he explains, when Israel, when they're complete, their relationship with the Almighty is perfect. Then there will be a spirit of the Almighty upon them, and their bodies, and their clothing, and their homes will have a special appearance to it. The Jewish people, when we are at our acme, when we are complete with the Almighty. We have a great relationship with Him. Things are going swimmingly. Then our clothing and our homes and our skin will have a nice special luster. It will glow. It will be luminescent. We'll have like an aura or a halo to it. After all, you know, for God's people and we're in the Holy Land and we have the Torah and the souls are alive within us. We're going to have a special appearance to us we're going to be existing almost like angels upon earth. And we're going to have a special glow to us. In fact, our sages tell us that in Olam Abba, in the world to come, in the afterlife, the righteous will have a shine to them and they will be as bright as the sun. And Moshe, we know, even in this world, his face was as bright as the sun and he had to wear a mask To avoid blinding the people. In fact, even today, if you ever have the great privilege of meeting a giant, enormous Torah scholar, you will see, and I've seen this with my own eyes, you will see that they almost glow. You know, recently Rabbi Chaim Kaniesti passed away. If you see any picture of him, you could see that his his skin is almost, it's luminescent, it has a special aura to it. His father, Rabbi Yashiv, who was the great rabbi, passed away, and I think it was 2012. His face radiated. His face shone. It had a glow to it. You know, my my teacher, my my rabbi, the person who I studied under in in yeshiva in Israel, Rabbi Usher Arieli, he has a glow to him as well. You get the sense that if you were to turn off the lights, they would glow in the dark. The Jewish people, at our peak, we're in the land of Israel. We have the Torah. We're keeping all the rules. We've fostered a real, genuine, deep relationship with the Almighty. The whole nation is glowing. We're free of sin. We are embodying what the Almighty wants of us. And then what happens, continues the Ramban, when one person does a sin, The result of that is that the Almighty is going to depart from them, and their skin or their clothing or their home will have a blemish, will be tarnished, will be discolored. And that's an indication that the Almighty has departed from them. When the Almighty is with us, so to speak, we shine, we glow, we radiate. When a person's sins creates a barrier, distance between them and the Almighty, while the Almighty departs from them. And as a result of that, there is discoloration. The Talmud tells us that there is a whole variety of sins that beget Saras. Talmud tells us the book of Arachim, page 16a, there are seven different sins that bring about Tsaras in their wake. Lashonara, evil talk, gossip, murder, swearing falsely, illicit sexual crimes, arrogance, theft, and finally, refusing to be generous with others, Tsaras eye, narrowness of eyes. And the Talmud proceeds to provide scriptural proof for all seven. These are the seven sins that beget Tsaras. So you have this special glow when you are complete with God. When you sin, God demonstrates his displeasure with you and he tarnishes your skin and that's an indication he's departed from you. And of course, this is supposed to serve as a wake-up call to get you to mend your ways, to get you to repent, and hopefully to restore your relationship with the Almighty. Continues the Ramban, this... Idea where Tsaras would appear on the house, so not just the skin, the garments, but also the house, that was only in the ancestral homes in the land. So again, this is indicative of this principle he's trying to convey that this is not some sort of mold or some sort of natural phenomenon. This is a spiritual malady. And it's tied to the land, even though it's not, you know, typically the laws that are applicable only in the land of Israel are the agricultural laws. This is nothing to do with the agriculture, but it is a reflection of the Jewish people when they are at their ideal state, namely in the land, then they're at this high level where a departure of God from them is in fact perceptible. So only when we are on this high level – Only then does God communicate with us so viscerally. Moreover, continues the Ramban, the Talmud tells us that only after the conquest and the division of the land, so after Moshe dies, Joshua takes over the helm of leadership for the nation, they cross over the Jordan and they have seven years of war with the Canaanite nations and seven years of division of the land. And only once people are settled and everyone is in their own home and they're able to have the peace of mind to further deepen their relationship with the Almighty, only then are they at the requisite level to have the experience of Tzaras. And again, not only Tzaras in the house, also Tzaras on the garments is only in the land of Israel. So this is the Ramban that's going to introduce us to this idea of Tsaras, of this, again, poorly translated leprosy, this malady that can manifest itself on the skin, on the garments, on the home of people who commit one of these seven sins. And there are several beautiful ideas here from the Ramban. A, that when we are at our peak, we have the special glow to us, but in that state on the high state, inland of Israel, when things are going really well, then a sin, a departure from God, it registers. And that serves as an awakening to get us to mend our ways. This is not some sort of natural sin ailment. It's totally spiritual, and it's a feature of a nation operating on a very high spiritual level. It's only in Israel where the capacity for spirituality is, of course, much greater. Now, the truth is, the Talmud tells us that there is another example of this idea. There is a precedent of a certain kind of relationship with the Almighty being featured only in the land of Israel. The Talmud book of Moed Katan on page 25a tells us that prophecy can only descend upon a person in the land of Israel, in the diaspora, outside of the land of Israel, prophecy is not feasible. And the Talmud asks, well, what about Ezekiel? Ezekiel, how was he able to prophesy on the rivers of Babylon? So the Talmud says, well, he already began his tenure as a prophet in the land of Israel, so he didn't lose it. But again, the principle of the Talmud is that this idea of having a direct connection with the Almighty, the Almighty speaks to the prophet, it's only in the locale, in the venue, in the land, where a connection with the Almighty is, in fact, possible. Or that level of connection is possible. So, just like we have the full-fledged prophecy, it's only in the land of Israel, so too, leprosy, tzaras. When God speaks to a person via tzaras and conveys his displeasure, we can call it low-level prophecy. The Mighty is telling you, I'm departing from you because of your misdeeds and missteps. That too is only in the land of Israel. Tsaras tells us the Ramban, but really this is, I guess, evident from the Talmud already. Tsaras is God's way of speaking to a person. It's not quite full-blown prophecy. It's Perhaps we can call it a low-grade prophecy, but it too, just like full-blown prophecy, is contingent on having a high spiritual baseline. But the idea of Taras, the way the Ramban frames it, is that the Almighty is communicating with a person. You've sinned. You've departed from the level that God wants you to be at. And therefore, you take a step away from God, he will respond in kind and take a step away from you, and that will manifest itself upon you, upon your clothing, upon your skin, upon your home. Now, the truth is that today, even though we don't have prophecy, we don't have actual prophets, we don't even have the low-grade prophecy of Tzorahs, nevertheless, God is always communicating with us. In fact, that, you can argue, is the central lesson of the Exodus. We have the upcoming festival of Pesach, Passover. What's the lesson? What is the idea? What's the theme of the festival? What are we trying to convey to our children on the Seder night? We're trying to convey this idea of faith that the Almighty is actively involved in our lives. He is interested in us. He wants us to improve our way. He wants us to develop a relationship with, with him. And that is what was established in the Exodus from Egypt many thousands of years ago. And that is what we try to perpetuate each Pesach, but really throughout the year. This is the founding event of our nation. And each year, we revisit that and reinforce those themes. The Ramban, again, in chapter 13 of Exodus, in the other part of bow, he has an incredible comment, an incredible piece, that my grandfather of blessed memory said, anyone who is serious about their relationship with the mighty must read this Ramban, this comment in Ramban in chapter 13 of Exodus and must know it by heart if you are serious about your relationship with the Almighty and you really want to develop some sort of connection with the Divine, this Ramban lays it all out so cleanly and neatly that you have to read it and study it and review it until you know it by heart. So what I thought we could do is maybe read through this Ramban and see how he's saying that the Almighty is trying to always be in constant communication with us and how that really is the the bedrock foundational principle upon which our religion is based, and of course, the upcoming festival of Pesach is really oriented around. The Ramban begins his piece by saying, I will tell you a principle, a reason for many mitzvot. Why do we have mitzvot? The Almighty is micromanaging, governing every aspect of our lives. That's what Torah is. That's what mitzvos are all about. Guidelines, manuals, instructions for every life scenario. Why do we have that? Says the Ramban, I'll tell you. Since the beginning of time, there have been corruptions of faith of all varieties. Some people, they repudiate faith in its entirety they are atheists they believe the world's been around forever that's one kind of heresy and there are those that say you know what there is a creator but he doesn't know what's happening on a small scale level he doesn't know what's happening doesn't know my behavior doesn't see what's happening behind closed doors that's a second kind of heresy and then there's a third kind of heresy they know that or they accept that god knows what's happening but he doesn't oversee. They reject the principle of divine providence. And they say that man is like the fish. The mind doesn't care about people on an individual level. And therefore, there's no reward and punishment, and we can live hedonistic, nihilistic lives. So, this is the state of humanity. Heresy of all kinds exists. And then, when the Almighty is desirous of a nation or an individual, and he makes a miracle that is an overt departure from the rules that govern the world. When there is a miracle, a miracle torpedoes heresy. When there is a miracle, everyone knows The world has a creator, and he renews the world on a continuous, ongoing basis. And he knows what's happening, and he's overseen, and he is all-powerful and omnipotent. And at a benefit, if such a miracle is foretold ahead of time by a prophet, well then, you believe another element of our faith, namely, that God speaks and communicates to mankind. If you have a miracle, you now have everything you need, to believe in faith, to believe in Torah. Miracles, thus, are the bedrock of our faith. Hence, he points out, if you look at the verses that talk about the Exodus, it's all about explaining, connecting the miracles and the plagues in Egypt to the faith that they speak upon, to the faith that they beget. yet, so that you know that I am God in the midst of the land. You should know that God exists in the world. There's no one like God. These are verses in, in Exodus chapter 8 and 9. And they are indicating, it says the Ramban, that the purpose of these miracles are to establish faith. Because the Egyptians, and of course, by extension, the Jews, they were non-believers. They were atheists. They were At least agnostics. And therefore, these miracles and these signs and these wonders, they served as witnesses, providing testimony to faith in God and to Torah. So the Egyptian redemption, it caused a complete masterclass of faith. The Almighty has all the power, the Almighty exists. The Almighty is continually being involved in the world. He knows what's happening down to the molecular level. The water turns the blood for the Egyptians. For the Jews, it's still water. A Jew is drinking from a straw and water comes out. The Egyptian sticks his straw into the same cup and blood comes out. The Almighty is governing every aspect of creation. At the splitting of the sea, the Egyptians die, some like straw, some like lead, some like stone. Again, Rashi tells us, every Egyptian was punished in a way that was directly commensurate and fitting to their crimes. Everything was done to perfection. The mighty is in complete control of everything, everything above us, everything around us, everything below us, everything is subject to the will of God. In Egypt, everyone who was privy to those events, they were all treated to a complete, comprehensive masterclass of faith. Now, what does this have to do with us now, you know, 3,300 years later, continues the Ramban. The Almighty doesn't do a miracle for every generation for every wicked person, for every heretic. The way the Almighty governs the world is that miracles are very infrequent, or at least what he calls revealed miracles are infrequent. So we have all these miracles that prove beyond any doubt the principles of our our faith, but then we're on our own. No more miracles, or at least not of this ilk. Therefore, says the Almighty, we should make a remembrance. We should have a sign. We should perpetuate these miracles that we saw. And we should convey them to our children. And our children will tell it to their children. And so on. Because at one point, we had complete faith. And we have the dispelling and banishment of all heresy. And if we can perpetuate that, faith will endure. And that's why, says the Ramban, we take this very seriously. Someone eats chametz on Pesach. Someone eats leavened bread on Pesach is cutting them, themselves off, is disenfranchised from the people. Why? Because this is so foundational. And this idea, the idea of the perpetuation of the events of the Egyptian exodus, they're around us the whole day. We have to take them and strap them with leather straps to our head and to our arm every day. And we have to write them and affix them to our doorposts in the mezuzah. And we have to invoke it with the Shema twice a day. And we have to Leave our homes, leave our permanent homes, and dwell in a temporary home for seven days every year. And along these lines, says the Rabban, there are many mitzvahs that are Zekerli systems, that are a remembrance from the Exodus. And the purpose of it all is that throughout the generations, throughout the years, we should always have witnesses, testimonies that we should never forget what happened. In Egypt. And there should not be a possibility for a heretic to repudiate the faith in God. In this framing, continues the Ramban, the power of mitzvahs are just incredible. You buy a mezuzah. You buy a mezuzah. How much does it cost? $50, $100? Has to be written by a scribe. You want to make sure the scribe is a a legitimate one who is not tampering with it. It's not so expensive. And you have fixed it on your door. By doing that, you are already testifying and acknowledging that the Almighty created the world and continually oversees the world and knows everything and oversees everything and has divine providence and you also believe in prophecy. All corners of the Torah, says Ramban, are affirmed by someone who affixes a mezuzah on their door. And that's why every mitzvah is indispensable. Because every mitzvah is there as a milestone, as a marker to perpetuate the faith. And why are we here? Why do we insist? What's the purpose of it all? we have no other reason for existence aside for man developing a relationship with the Almighty. And of course, when we say man, we mean mankind. That we should know about God, and we should acknowledge God, and we should appreciate God. And that's what we pray. And that's what we get together to do mitzvos, To publicize and to testify to the existence of God. And the last line of this iconic comment from the Ramban, he tells us that, you know, miracles, the public miracles, the overt miracles, the undeniable miracles, as in what happened in the Exodus, they reveal that really everything that happens in life, even what he calls the private miracles, they are all miracles. (laughs) From the great and public and overt miracles, a person can come to realize the hidden, concealed miracles. Listen to this last line. A person does not have a portion of the Torah of Moshe unless they believe that everything that happens to us And all of the events of our lives, they are all miracles. There is no thing called nature. There is no independent existence of reality outside of God. Not to the masses, not to the individuals. Everything is overseen by God. What an incredible piece. You could see why my grandfather would say that everyone wants to really understand what Torah is about, what mitzvahs are about, has to read this and understand this and lose by heart because he's laying it all out. He's telling us that there are gradients of heresy. People didn't believe in God as a creator or that he is all-powerful, that he knows everything or that he renews existence at all times. As we say, Genesis is ongoing. There are other forms of heresy where people don't believe that God is involved with humanity on an individualized basis. And a miracle is something which shatters that heresy. And the Exodus was a series of miracles that were kind of the formative education of our people. And mitzvot are there to perpetuate the memory and the testimony of those miracles and the faith that they imbued. And once we adopt this world view of faith, we realize that everything is really a miracle. There is no independent authority of nature. Everything is the handiwork of God. And again, I want to repeat this last line. <speaking in Hebrew> a person doesn't have a, a, a portion in the Torah of Moshe until you believe that everything that happens to us, all of our circumstances, kulam <speaking> nisim, <in Hebrew> They are all miracles. Ain Bahem Teva. There's no nature in them. Um, and the way things just work. What this Ramban is telling us is that there are, of course, many levels of prophecy. And we know that the Jewish people are a non-profit organization. We have been for 2,300 years or so. We cannot have actual prophecy. We don't even have the Tsaras level of prophecy. But every single thing that happens to us, it's a miracle. It's directly overseen by God. And of course, it's hard for us to fathom that because, you know, we're finite creatures. And therefore, the idea of the infinite is something that we cannot even fathom. We can't fathom the idea of adjusting outside of time and space. We cannot fathom the idea of lack of scarcity. How is it possible that every single thing that happens to us is all overseen by God? This Ramban would tell us that the fact that your heart continues to pump each time it's the Almighty telling your heart to pump. Every time you breathe, it's my telling your diaphragm to expand, and your lungs to work, and your body to breathe. Every one of the hundred trillion synapses in your brain that are firing at all times, every one of those is directly overseen and guided and directed by God. God is involved with us every second of every day of our lives. Genesis is ongoing. God is renewing creation every second. This is a totally different way of of viewing life. But this is the Torah's way of viewing life. The book of Psalms ends. Every soul should praise God. Says the Midrash, call nishama, the word nishamam, which means soul, has the same Hebraic root as nishima, which means breath. For every breath that you take, which is, I don't know, tens of thousands of times a day, depending on your resting heart rate, how much aerobics you're doing, how much cardio you're doing, how many times you're breathing every time, every, every day. Thousands, tens of thousands. Every time you give a deep breath. That might sound really weird on the podcast. Breathe in, breathe out. Every time you breathe, even when you're not really conscious of it, you should be thanking God. Because there is no independent system that says it'll work until it stops working. There is no default you're alive. Every second, the Almighty is willing you into existence. Genesis is ongoing. Every time you breathe, you have a little bit of more life that's given to you directly by God. We think that you're alive until, until you die, until God takes it away from you. No, you're dead. And every second, God has given you life. God is involved with you, with you, with us, with existence, all the time. Every second, God is creating me and you and everyone that we know anew. This is a radical idea and one that really reshapes everything. In the morning, the first prayer we're supposed to say is the Modani prayer. Modani l'fanecha. I want to thank you. Melechai v'kayam. A king that is high, that is alive. And enduring. to for you have returned my soul. Mercy to me. Rabba emunasecha. So what does rabba emunasecha mean? Rabba means a lot. Emunasecha is your faith. So the commentaries tell us that God has faith in us. God is giving us life. He is restoring our soul. He is giving us another breath of life, another pump of that heart, another explosion of those synapses. I don't know, is that the right word? Explosion of synapses? Firing, firing of synapses. Because he believes in us. I remember hearing from a great rabbi the following shocking statement. He said, God Hates religion. God hates religion. Who would say that? This means is that religion is like, you know, a stultified, ritualistic, dogmatic ceremonies. We don't believe in religion. We believe in a relationship, a continuous, ongoing relationship. Something which is alive, God is involved with us on the most minute level all the time. Everything that happens to us is all divine communication. We cannot have prophecy, even that Sarah's prophecy we don't have. But God's involved with us every second of every day. So how does this play out? What are the ramifications of these ideas? So of course, we already saw one way that this plays out. When God is displeased, when we have sinned and we have departed from God and we have created a barrier, created distance between us and our creator, well, he sends us a message. Tsaras, so when we are worthy of such a visceral and tangible and palpable message, we get those splotches. On a more broader scale, when bad things befall us, we are trained. to talks about this extensively to try to figure out what message is God telling us. I told you that we were in the Northeast this past week, and Shabbos we were together with the festivities and the post-wedding festivities, and someone someone fell down in quite a spectacular fashion on Shabbos. And there were like a hundred and some odd people in the room and everyone's rushing over to see if she's okay. And thank God she was fine. But she told me this is the third time in a couple of weeks that she fell. And each time it was a fluke, you know, something collapsed, something, something, she hit something, something hit her. Each time it's a fluke. But she is trying to figure out what the message is. What is God telling her? That's the idea, the general idea here of God being involved with us on a day-to-day level, on a minute-to-minute level. And the bad things that befall us are messages. So yes, we don't have taras. We don't have that level of communication. It's much more subtle and it's less direct, but there are still messages. There's no event that happens to us that's just, that's the way things go. That's the way things operate. That's just nature. We don't believe in that. God is always communicating with us. The Talmud tells us in the book of Arach on page 16b, it's talking about the idea of suffering, yesurim, suffering. What is the minimal amount of suffering to register? And we'll see why this is relevant in a second. What is the smallest amount of suffering that registers? So the tailor brings a few opinions. One opinion is, well, if you order a suit and you go to the tailor and then you come back and it doesn't really fit, you know, the sleeves are too long or too short, you suffer a little bit. Of course, it's not existential suffering, but that still registers. The second opinion tells us, no, there's even a more minimal level of suffering that registers. If you want to dilute your drink with hot water, And instead you get cold water or cold water. And instead you get hot water. That registers. It's almost like the pain. You know, in antiquity, they're diluting their, their wine. It's almost like a, like a concentrate. They're diluting their wine with water and the water is too hot or too cold. It's almost like today, you know, you go to the shower and the shower, oh, it's so cold. Oh, and then you turn too much and it's piping hot. You've seen those showers, right? Continues the Talmud there's even a more minimal level of suffering that registers. If you put on your clothing, you put on your shirt, and it's inside out, you've seen that, right? Uh, Oh, no, I'm wearing it backwards. I got to take it and move it outside in. That, too, is considered suffering. Finally, the Talmud tells us, if you stick your hand in your pocket, you want to pull out one coin or two coins, you pull out the wrong amount, you pull out a quarter instead of a nickel, and you got to stick your hand in again. No one would describe that as, you know, existential suffering, but nevertheless, that registers. Says the Talmud, what does it matter? Who cares? What is the smallest amount of suffering that registers? Tells us the Talmud, if you go 40 days without any suffering, you should know that you are doomed for eternity. And therefore, the Talmud trying to figure out what the smallest amount of inconvenience to make sure that we're all suffering at least a little bit, that way we're not doomed for eternity. What this is telling us, again, the broader theme here, is that suffering, of any kind, that is divine communication. So of course, you know, we have the direct divine communication. You know, the highest level of prophecy is Moshe, Mosaic prophecy. And then there are many, many, many levels of prophecy. And then actual prophecy ceases. And then you have the lower levels of prophecy and even Saras, which is a form of prophecy. But a suffering, something bad happens to you. You stick your hand in your pocket. You want a quarter. You pull out a nickel. You got to stick your hand in there again. That is divine communication. It has a very, very low level of prophecy. God is speaking to you. He wants to get your attention. He wants to tell you something. Everything is a message. The Talmud elsewhere tells us, I think this is in the book of Chul in page 7b, a person doesn't hurt their finger from below. You don't stub your toe unless it was declared so from above. And again, God is declaring, I want this person to have this minor inconvenience. For an objective. We have to remember what the purpose of these messages are, and that is to get a person back on track. And the broader idea here is the Almighty wants great things from us. He does not want us to be we weren't put here to be mediocre. But of course, we get distracted. We have Yet Sahara, there's a big bad world out there, there are all kinds of headlines trying to grab our attention, and the stock market is so insane, and the March Madness Final Four. And of course, there's the midterms, and the politics, and the pop culture. We are distracted every day, all the time. And then if there is, God forbid, a few minutes where you're not distracted, you pull out your phone, you can scroll through. Instagram or Facebook or Twitter to make sure that there's no time for reflection. An amazing thing. We have these superpowers. We have these incredible capacity with a soul that's more lofty than angels. But we're put in a world where there are so many distractions and we, we don't even realize what life is all about. Because if you have a moment of reflection that or capacity for that, it's already filled up. And now they even make phones that are completely waterproof. See, even when you're showering, you should not have a moment of reflection. This is unconscionable. This is untenable. God wants us to become great. and we're wasting our time. I heard an idea in the name of my grandfather, even though I was not able to source this in time for the podcast. The... Psalm tells us, this is Psalms 121, Behold, he will not slumber, and he will not sleep, the guardian of Israel. So simply put, this is King David extolling God. God is the guardian of the Jewish people, and he won't slumber, he won't sleep, he won't be drowsy at the wheel. So I heard in the name of my grandfather, I was not able to source this, but I heard it from a very reputable source, that what this means is, or maybe a way to read this verse, is that God does not allow us to sleep. Whenever we fall into a pattern of mediocrity, we're not firing on all cylinders, we're not being productive, we're not living up to our potential, we're asleep at the wheel. God jolts us awake. He elbows us. He arouses us. He does not allow us to fall beyond the pale. He is going to be speaking to us. He's going to be communicating with us. You could be great, but you're here to do great things. Why are you wasting your life? Why are you wasting your time? Why are you sleeping? This is not what you're here for. God is constantly communicating with us. I want to elaborate in this idea. I want to kind of take it to the next step. Every bump in the road, there's no such a thing as nature. This is the way things are, the Ramban tells us. You have no portion, no section of the Torah of Moshe if you believe that there's just things that happen and God's not involved. I want to take this to the next step. The verse tells us in our parsha. Chapter 14, verse 34. When you come to the land of, of Canaan, land of Israel, God will place the Tsaras in the house of your ancestral homeland. And Rashi quotes us a midrash. This is something that we spoke about in last year's Parsha podcast, in a podcast titled Blessings in Disguises. Rashi quotes a midrash. The midrash says, this is a tiding. When you arrive in the land of Israel, you will have Tsaras appear on the walls of your ancestral homeland. Because the natives, the indigenous people who live there ahead of us arriving, they knew the Jewish people were coming and the Jewish people were juggernaut. So they took their gold and their valuables and their jewels and their diamonds and they hid them behind the walls and they plastered it up. And then the Jewish people come and they have to vacate their homes But there's gold hiding in the walls. And the Almighty makes a special spot on the wall. And you have to call the Kohen. You have to empty out the contents of your home. And the Kohen says, it looks like this is Ras, And you have to dismantle those stones. And when you remove those stones, you discover the hidden treasure. So last year, if you remember, in the podcast titled Blessings in Disguises, we quoted the Talmud in the Book of Sanhedrin on page 71a, which says that this actually never happened. There was never an instance where someone had splotches on the walls of their ancestral home. So last year, we suggested an approach In that aforementioned episode, today, I want to suggest a different idea. Maybe it's like an extension of what we said last year. There is gold. There are jewels. There are diamonds. There's treasure hidden behind the walls. It's all there. It's been there for 40 years. The Almighty sends us terrible events or things that initially appeared to be terrible, even though it's not really, like we would say, it's not an existential problem. If you have to dismantle your home, everyone's alive, everyone's safe. But it is very frustrating. You spend 40 years in the wilderness and 14 years of conquest and division of the land and finally your home. It's been 54 years since the exodus from Egypt and you finally are living in a permanent home. You finally moved out of your temporary dwelling. You've left the tent. You've settled down in the land of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. And before you know it, you look, is, is that mold? What is that? And the coin comes, you have to dismantle your house. And you have to take all your stuff and bring them outside. You have to find another place to stay. But the truth is, the Almighty is pointing you towards your greatness, towards your treasure, towards what you need to have. You just have to go through some hoops to get it. We all have this greatness bait within us. But to unlock that greatness, you need to shake the box. God throws us a curveball. He makes us dismantle the house. You have gold within you. But to access it, you're going to need to move. You're going to need to leave your house. That's security. That's stability. The place that we call home. All that has to be abandoned. All that has to be left behind. The infrastructure that gives you comfort and safety and security, you have to abandon that. You have to expose yourself to some Vulnerability. You have to even be willing to absorb some public indignity. So maybe this really never did happen, like the Talmud in the book of Sunatra, page 71A, tells us. So why is it written? It's written to tell us the lesson. The humanity is communicating with us in a way that will best yield the outcome of us discovering our gold. He's talking to us. And we're like, no, we don't want to hear that. No, I'm closing my ears. Don't tell me. But the truth is, he's trying to point us to the gold. He's trying to direct our attention to the jewels and the diamonds that we have. We're just ignorant of. We're totally unaware of. He's trying to get our attention. He's trying to speak to us. And part of the message is that... Our comfort, our proverbial home, our security blanket, the things that we feel like we need, those untouchable parts of our lives, they need to be dismantled. The way you get your gold is by dismantling those things that keep you the way you are today. And the Almighty, in His kindness, wakes us up. I'm not going to allow you to sleep and be drowsy and live your life in a way that you're just unaware of all that gold that's there. He's not going to allow us to do it. And of course, initially, it seems very disconcerting. Nobody wants to abandon their comfort. Nobody wants to leave their home. Nobody wants to start dismantling their home. But the Almighty, in his benevolence, in his determination to to communicate to us, to get us to live up to our potential, to get us to discover our gold, communicates to us in a way that feels like, hey, I'm sleeping, I need a nap, oh, don't wake me up. This is like, you know, trying to wake up a bee. I feel uh, I could say this. A, it's, I don't know, 55 minutes into this podcast. So most of y'all already signed off, I'm sure. But also, you know, the the wallabies don't listen really. You know, I could get my kids to listen to anything. To listen to daddy, ah, we know what you have to say already. So I could say this. To wake up a sleeping wallaby. The, these wallabies know how to sleep. They know how to sleep. Oh, they're so tired. Don't wake me up. I'm so tired. I didn't sleep the whole night. But somehow when it comes to bedtime, it's like, oh, I'm fully awake, I'm I'm up, I'm sprightly, let's go play, let's go play some ping pong and go play some basketball outside. To be woken up from a deep slumber is not a pleasant experience. And God does not want to allow us to sleep because there's gold, there are jewels, there are diamonds that are just there, right there within your reach. But to do it, you have to be woken up from your slumber. You have to be shaken out of bed. You have to be willing to depart from that security and that stability that we all feel like. Because the comfort of your existence, whenever you're comfortable, you're complacent, this is the way things are, and you're not realizing that to expand you need to sometimes dismantle that little cocoon that you have that you made for yourself. I was even thinking, I don't know if this is actually accurate, but it's definitely creative. The Talmud talks about suffering. And what's the smallest amount of suffering? Is it having a tailored suit that doesn't quite fit? Is it getting the the dilution a little bit off in a temperature sense? Is it having your clothing inside out? Is it sticking around your pocket and getting the wrong coins or the wrong amount of coins? The Hebrew term for suffering here is yesurim. Suffering, yesurim. And the Talmud tells us in the book of Brachos, shalosh matonos tovos, there are three great gifts that God gave the Jewish people. Vekulam, El And these great gifts God only gave to us via Yesurim, via suffering. And they are Torah, the Land of Israel, and Olam Abba. Gifts, the biggest gifts that we have, were only given to us via Yesurim, via suffering. I want to suggest the Hebrew word for suffering is Yisurim, but the Hebraic root is the same root as the term to turn away. So for example, chapter three of Exodus, when Moshe encounters the burning bush, he turns aside. Vayom Moshe, Asura, now let me turn aside. And let me see this great sight. Why is the bush not being consumed? In verse four of chapter three of Exodus, Vyarshem, he saw Liros. God saw that he turned aside, that he went off the path, and he looked to see what was going on. But the word for the word for Yesuram, which means suffering, is the same Hebraic root as the word to turn aside. Maybe we can suggest that to get the gifts that God wants to give us we need to turn aside we have to veer off the path so to speak of our comfort of our regular life that we are settled into and again this is the extension of the idea that suffering is a form of a message from god it's a wake-up call don't sleep don't slumber you're being too drowsy it's not just to get us back on track but it's also to expose the greatness and the treasure that we have within us. And the way to get that is through Yisurim, which means, of course, the, the actual definition is, is suffering, but it also means to turn aside, to turn, to turn off, to veer off. We have to turn aside from the comfort, from the security and stability of our current situation. We have to dismantle the house and only thereby unlock All those treasures. But of course, the larger message, both of the Parsha and of the upcoming festival, is that God is always involved in our lives. He's always speaking to us. And there are many levels of that. Of course, direct prophecy, Tsaras level prophecy. There is no nature in the world. There's no just course of events the way they just happen, tells us the Ramban. Everything is a message. You stub your toe; it's a message. You suffer in any way, even a the most minor, insignificant way. That's a message from God. But ultimately, He's trying to get us to discover that treasure, and the and the way to do that is to deviate, is to turn away, so to speak, from that comfort and that stability, and that cocoon. Dismantle those bricks expose ourselves to a bit of vulnerability, to listen very carefully what the Almighty is communicating with us. He wants us to be great, to be special. And he's not going to allow us to sleep and to slumber. He's going to wake us up. Sometimes it's not really pleasant to be shaken away from our deep slumber. But ultimately, that is what we really want. Okay, let's do this week's exquisite insight. The second verse of our parasha, Zos Tihye Toras hamitzora." This is the Torah of the Metzorah, beyond Taurus on the day of his purification, Ve'huva El HaKohen, and he shall be brought to the Kohen. As we mentioned earlier, Tsaras comes from a variety of sins, but primarily due to the sin of Lashon Hara, evil talk, gossip, evil talk, has drastic consequences. Our it is tell us that lashon hara, evil talk, speaking evilly about a, another person, they create a spiritual wealth transfer. A spiritual wealth transfer. Listen to this. This is the scariest thing that you will hear today. Our it is tell us If person A speaks to person B negatively about person C, that is creating a spiritual wealth transfer. The sins of the person who was besmirched, person C in our example, those sins get transferred to the speaker, person A. The mitzvos of the speaker, namely person A, they get transferred to the person who was besmirched. So if you speak negatively about someone else, God forbid, that person gets your mitzvahs and you get their sins. This is just a devastating idea. Someone does mitzvahs, they study Torah, they give charity, they dedicate themselves to the agenda of the soul, and poof. When they speak hara, all that gets transferred to their nemesis who they just spoke evil about. How terrifying. To make it worse... The other person sins. They desecrate the shabbos. They eat non kosher. They steal. They're evil. But now you've spoken evil about them. You have absorbed those sins. A terrible idea. A terrible, awful trade off. What have you earned? What did you get? Lashon Ramiyah, what does it add to you? How do you benefit? Do you become richer or more handsome or talented? Or does your situation improve in any way when you speak bad about someone else? You get nothing. There is no tangible benefit to slandering, to verbally maligning someone. Gossip yields nothing. You earn Nothing. And what do you lose? You're forfeiting your mitzvos. The person you spoke evil about is getting your mitzvos, and you get their sins. That's a terrible idea. It's an awful trade-off. It's a terrible thing to do. And the commentaries tell us that that is the meaning of this verse. Zos, Tihiyah, Toras, Mitsorah. This is the Torah of the mitzorah of the person who has Tzorahs. Biyom taharaso. So, of course, the the simple meaning is this is the laws. This is the corpus, the Torah, the laws governing the Mitzvah on the day of his purification. But it can also be read homiletically. This is the Torah of the Mitzvah. When does a person earn their own Torah? When is someone's Torah theirs? When they purify themselves. The day of their purification. If you want to earn your mitzvot, you want to maintain your own good deeds, you have to make sure that you are pure in this area, not to speak evil about someone else, because if you do, you have great deeds, but they're not yours anymore. There's been a spiritual wealth transfer. The deeds, so to speak, to those mitzvot have been transferred to your nemesis, to person C in our example. I read something really clever. Listen to this. The Talmud makes a shocking statement about physicians. It's only three words, but it's really devastating. Tov shabarofim, the best of the physicians, legehennom, to to hell, to purgatory. Now we have many friends who are physicians. We have many listeners are physicians and they're the most kind and generous and dedicated people, people who love humanity, people want to help them why would the Talmud make such a negative statement about the physicians that the best of them go to Gehenom. so there are various interpretations it has been suggested well, who needs to be healed the people in Gehenom, and therefore the, the best physicians have to be sent there Alternatively, the word tov, which means the best of, tov shabarofim, shabarof, the best of the physicians, the word tov, the gematria, the numerical value of the word tov is 17. Well, how so? The Tess is the ninth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph is the tes, nine. The vav is the sixth. So nine plus six is 15. And the final letter of the word tov is the vet or the Bet. And that is the second letter, Aleph Bet. So 9 plus 6 plus 2, 15, 17. The gematria of the word Tov is 17. Tov Shebarofim, the Tov of the physicians. We know that there are 18 blessings that we say in the Amidah. One of them is Raphay, let us be healed. If there is a physician who is Tov, who is 17, namely who believes that they're the one providing the healing and therefore they don't need to ask God for help in healing, such a physician is indeed destined for Gehenna. Because even if you're a physician, and even if you are healing people, you still have to do that 18th blessing, the blessing of healing. You cannot get too aloof and hubristic to believe that you're doing the healing. Ultimately, it is God who is doing the healing, and of course you're partnering with him. But if you're a tov, if you're the good, meaning the 17, you're doing only 17 of the blessings, not the 18th one, that is a crime worthy of Gehenna. But I saw another suggestion relevant to what we just said. Who is the best physician for someone's spiritual maladies? What is the best way to heal someone's maladies? Someone has sins. They are spiritually ill. They are laden with spiritual maladies. What is the best way to heal them? The best way to heal them is to speak Lashon Hurrah about them, is to speak evil talk gossip about them, is to slander them, is to malign them. Why is it the best way to heal them? Because you've just adopted all their sins. They have all your mitzvos. You have all their sins. You are the best physician. Someone who speaks evil about someone else is the best physician because you've just cleansed them of all their sins by absorbing them yourself and you've just made them replete with mitzvos by giving them yours. You're the best physician, but you are bound for a because with this awful sin you've now absorbed all their sins on top of your sins and you don't have any mitzvot to defend yourself you're going to end up in ganum a terrifying idea but that's our parsha we have this mitzvah. someone has saras and why do you have saras because of primarily because of Lashon hara yields nothing and you are forfeiting everything. It's a terrible idea, a terrible trade-off. May we be very vigilant about not making that very poor and foolish decision to speak Shon Hara against our fellow man. When we say man, we mean mankind. I thank you for listening. We went a bit over time, but maybe because next week we're going to be off, and the following week we're going to be off, there will not be a new Parsha, not next week, the following week, Maybe it's okay to go a little bit over time. Please forgive me if it was a little bit too long. Thank you for listening. Have an incredible rest of your day. Have a fantastic and splendid and wonderful and terrific rest of your week. And have a spectacular and sensational and wonderful in every possible way. An incredible Shabbos upcoming. And of course, Pesach. Have a sensational, terrific, Chag Kashev Samech, a kosher and a happy Passover. And please, God, in the event that we don't speak again next week or the following week, again, I'm going to try to do another podcast next week and the following week, just because I'm going to suffer withdrawal symptoms. So maybe, we'll see. Let's put a pin in that. But regardless, we will talk again, please, God, after Pesach. Parshas Achremos. Thank you for listening. Have an incredible Pesach. And as always, my address is... Rabbi Wolby at gmail.com.